All right, here we go. Revelation chapter 2. We've been walking through the book of Revelation. We're using a, I am using a commentary by G.K. Beale primarily. as my primary um, source, interpretive source, if you will. And it's been absolutely phenomenal. I said when I started this, the, um, the stats say that the book of Revelation is the pastor's least favorite book to preach on. <laughs> And the, and, the, and the person that's going to church, the most, their most wanted to be preached on book. So it's a really good book to preach on. We, I, I think bad preachers extra compound and confuse this book. It's already hard, right? There's already like elements that we don't get. There's already all this illusion and symbolism and all this stuff. And, and people that miscommunicate about this book make it harder to understand. It reminds me of when Jesus says to the Pharisees, you block the way to the kingdom of heaven. You neither enter nor allow other people to enter. What a horrible statement against the Pharisees. You neither enter yourselves and you block the pathway for other people to enter as well. That's, that is one of the most serious things Jesus says. And that's, a, that's something that pastors in our culture need to watch out for as well. Okay, so last week, let's recap it. We went through Ephesus and Smyrna. Those are the first of the seven churches. So we went through first, the, the first chapter. We talked about Revelation primarily being symbolic. That It's just like Daniel. It's very much like Zechariah. It's very much a prophetic book. And that God is speaking to John as a prophet, and he's speaking to him in symbolism. And then we went to Ephesus first, and we said, Ephesus is a church that has all of their theology right. They're squared away. They have all of the T's crossed and the I's dotted, but they've forgotten their first love. They've forgotten about evangelism, about caring for people, about the power of the Holy Spirit. And that fire from Acts chapter 2 that rests upon the heads, just like the lampstands in Revelation, is supposed to be us as believers, that we're not just people that have great theology, but there's a living, flickering flame above our head as we're walking through this world. This is what Gabe talked about, like the, that the life of God is inside of us. Right, church? And then the second was the church of Smyrna. And you remember that Smyrna, really, Jesus didn't have anything negative to say about them at all. And it's one of the very, one of the two churches he doesn't have something negative to say. Smyrna is in the midst of persecution, and they're about to be killed many of them and Jesus says all you have to do is hold on you know when you're being persecuted like all of a sudden you're not dealing with the little sins anymore <laughs> the little struggles the little things that were gnawing at you or those little kind of things that were tangling or holding onto your feet you're not dealing with them when you're about to die all you're thinking about is Jesus God hold on like I need to hold on to you I don't know if you've been to one of these experiences where you're at the hospital and you feel like you're going to die have you ever been there before I, I've been there. I had kidney stones one time, and I was like, I'm dead. I'm, it's over. Life is over. I was drinking too much Diet Coke, and I got kidney stones from it. And I thought I was going to die. And I was laying there on the bed, and you know what I was doing? I was singing hymns, because I figured if I was about to meet God, I should have him in a good mood before I get there, right? I was actually singing Jason Upton songs. This is what I was singing. Because... When you're at the edge of life and death, you focus on the things that are eternal. And so the church of Pergamum that is being persecuted, they're at the brink of death. It's really easy for them to focus on the eternal. And Jesus does not chastise them for anything else because they're focused on the eternal. 
the temporal struggles they're not dealing with. And it's a really cool picture. Okay, so I keep, I was saying, was I switching Pergamum and Smyrna? I don't know. We're, we're on Smyrna, we're, excuse me, we're on Pergamum tonight, and this is the third church. So let's read this. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Does anybody feel like they dwell where Satan's throne is? Can I get an amen in New York City? Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they may eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Verse 15. So also some of you, excuse me, so also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans believed a very similar set. 16. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against you with the sword of my mouth. Okay, I always have to remind us here. Jesus is talking to the church. Jesus is talking to Christians. This is who he's talking to. He's not talking to the world. The wrong perspective is that Jesus is talking to the world. He's not. He's saying to a church of Pergamum, verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the three things. Hidden manna, I will give him a white stone and three with a new name written on it so that no one knows, knows the name except the one who receives it. So that's the letter to the church of Pergamum. I don't know if we'll be able to get anywhere else tonight, but let's start here. And it says this to the angel of the church of Pergamum, right? Now... We haven't touched too much on this, but some interpretations hold kind of a two-fold perspective on this introductory phase to the angel of the church of Pergamum. The one idea is that an angel is a messenger of God, and so that Jesus is talking to the, ch the primary pastor, the main messenger of the voice of God in that city. To the angel, Beale says, could be to the primary leader or pastor of that church because he is the messenger or mouthpiece of God. Write this. So Pergamum, we have this Asiatic city in modern-day uh, region of Turkey. It's known for wealth. It's known for lots of different temples. And it's known for medicine. Those are the three primary things that it's known for. Oh, the, the fourth, excuse me, is it's known for education. There was a book, there's a library of 200,000 books that was gifted to one of the um, leaders of that city, which is insane if you think about, you know, in Jesus' time having 200,000 books. They didn't have the Gutenberg Press, right, at that time in the world. Those are all handwritten books. It's not like they're banging them out with the press. So education, medicine, temples, and wealth. Actually, um, the Magian cult comes from this city. And do we remember when Jesus is born, there are the Magi that travel to Jesus. They see his sign in the stars and they travel to Jesus to drop off gifts. Well, this city is the center of the Magian cult. 
And the, the head guy was called the Pontifus Maximus. He was the head of the Magian cult that actually got adopted by the Romans and then later got adopted by the Pope, actually, as a name. That word Pontifus means bridge builder. Pontifus Maximum means the chief or the lead bridge builder. Now, for the Magi, they were wanting to build bridges between man and demonic spirits, entities, beings that would empower you and lead you and guide you. That's what the Magian cult was doing. Um, and and there, was, there is some truth in the, this Magian cult. Every secular system of the world has some truth in it. If it was all lies, we would all reject it, right? There are some elements of truth in it. The greatest lies have the most truth, and then one little twist of lie at the end, because then we'll just consume it without knowing we're getting the lie. Um, This Magian cult is confusing. Uh, It mixes elements of truth and elements of occult. And this is what's happening in this church at Pergamum. They are being confused by bad theology. They are being asked to accept sexual immorality, sinful practices, and they're living in kind of this gray, ambiguous place. You know, the scripture says that knowledge puffs up. And so when you have 200,000 books and you have tons of knowledge and tons of education, you can get really prideful and really dumb at the same time. And so this is how Jesus appears. 12b, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Jesus, in this passage, doesn't have a sword coming out of his mouth. Beale says he has a sword in his hand. Oftentimes we see pictures of Jesus depicted, especially in medieval art, in pain or at the cross, different stations. We don't often see pictures depicted of Jesus holding a sword. But here, he's standing before the church of Pergamum holding a sword, and this is going to help us interpret everything he says to the church of Pergamum. They're confused. There's all of this education There's medicine that seems to be bringing solutions. They don't know where to turn. And Jesus comes to them as a judge with a sword in his hand. And he's standing over the church, not with arms stretched out wide. With hands wide open. Yes, who you marry. No, no, no arms wide open. Sword unsheathed, standing before the church. He's showing up to the church as judge. Judges know the law. Good judges know the law really well. Um, I had an opportunity to argue a case a number of years ago before a panel of judges at at the appellate level. And when you're in a trial court, you have one judge generally. And when you appeal that ruling of the trial judge, you go to the appellate court. And the appellate court has a certain number of judges. My appeals bench had five different judges that all knew the law really well. Judges, their job, especially at the appellate courts, the court of appeals and then above that in the federal context would be the Supreme Court, their job is to rule on the law. And they're able to make decisions with swords like, 
chop up between left and right confusing situations when you know the law really well. When you don't know the law really well, it gets confusing. And you need the judge to come with the two-edged sword. So Jesus comes with a sharp two-edged sword, and we know in Hebrews 4.12 it says this, The word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Jesus comes in verse 12 with the sword in his hand. In verse 16, he has a sword coming out of his mouth. Why? (laughs) Because it's his words, with his words, that he judges the churches. With his words, he divides light and darkness. With his words, he discerns what's happening in them. The sword is um, emblematic of both justice and the execution of justice. And I want to show you this real fun scripture. Maybe some of you know, maybe some of you don't know. Out of 1 Kings chapter 3, it says this. One day, two women came to King Solomon, and one of them said, Your Majesty, this woman and I live in the same house. Not long ago, my baby was born at home, and three days later, her baby was born, and nobody else was there with us. And one night, we were all asleep, and this lady rolled over on her baby, and he died. Then while I was asleep, she got up and took my son out of my bed and put him in her bed, and she put the dead baby next to me. In the morning when I got up to feed my son, I saw that he was dead. But when I looked at him in the light, I knew this was not my son. No, the other woman shouted. He was your son. My baby is alive. The dead baby is yours. Then the first woman yelled, mine is alive. And they argued back and forth in front of King Solomon. Until finally he said, both of you say this live baby is yours. Someone Bring me a sword. Now remember, a sword represents primarily discernment, judgment, division of confusion for the purpose of life. And Solomon ordered, cut the baby in half. That way, each of you can have part of him. Please don't kill my son, the baby's mother screamed. Your, your majesty, I love him very much. Just give him to her. Don't kill him. The other woman shouted, go ahead, cut him in half. (laughs) It's like, he's falling into the trap here. Go ahead, cut him in half. Then neither of us will have the baby. And Solomon said, don't kill the baby. He pointed to the first woman and said, she is the real mother. Give the baby to her. Everyone in Israel was amazed when they heard how Solomon had made his decision. And then, and they realized that God had, had given him wisdom to judge fairly. God uses the sword to find the incentives of the heart. Because when it's life and death time, when it's life or death at stake, the things that matter rise to the top. And so when Jesus shows up with a sword, he's saying to the church, I want to know what matters to you. I want to know what's important to you. And if you don't decide, I'm going to give you time, but if you don't decide, the sword will depend, descend. Excuse me. Romans chapter 2, we said this morning, there's this uh, 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 verse that's taken out of context all the time. It says that the kindness of the Lord leads them to repentance. The verse literally in context says the Lord is going to bring judgment upon you. He's not doing it yet because his kindness leads you to repentance. 
The sword is coming, but he's giving you a time, an opportunity to repent. We're going to see in the next uh, church, or excuse me, in Thyatira, in the next, yeah, the next church, that he even says to Jezebel, I gave that woman time to repent. Could you imagine this? God gives Jezebel time to repent? Is that a crazy idea? I think it is. But he's full of kindness and he gives us an opportunity. That's his kindness. The opportunity to change. We have this idea in our culture that like he's kind so he would never have a sword. No, he's kind and he has a sword. He's kind and he carries the sword. Amen? So Christ is standing over Pergamum in judgment and the picture we have to hold through the rest of the letter. The sword again in verse 16 comes out of his mouth. And um, Jesus is judging the church because the church has refused to judge itself. And this is the state, I believe, of the American church, that the judgment of Jesus is here in the American church because we've refused to judge ourselves. We've booted the, the message of repentance We've booted the message of purity, of the holiness of God. We refuse to judge our own actions, so God is standing above us, and he's going to judge us. 1 Corinthians 11.31, it's really clear in the scripture. Now, if we judged ourselves properly, we would not come under judgment. Again, we're talking to the church here. 32, but when we are judged by the Lord, we as believers... We are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. Jesus is talking to the church that he bought with his blood that he loves. And there's some people that need the harshness of the sword of the Lord in order for them to change. There's some times, there's some seasons, there's some cultures, there's some churches Often when you're filled with your own knowledge, when you have 200,000 books in the library and you think you have it all down and you're dabbling with, de with demons. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, Jesus is about to spank them, but he starts with an encouragement. He says, first to them, you hold fast to my name. You, you don't deny the faith. Uh, I appreciate that about you. This is a really good just leadership lesson. If you want to correct somebody, then you just bring the, a, a, like a bomb on their head. Oftentimes, they'll just shut your ears and they'll shut you out and not hear anything you have to say. But Jesus actually, with all of the churches, you'll see the pattern. He encourages the church first because he loves them, <laughs> even when he's standing with the sword. And then he corrects them. He encourages them, and then he corrects them. They have held fast to his name. They are what you might call nominal Christians. Nominal is not necessarily a negative uh, term. It's not necessarily negative connotations. Nominal means in name. So they've held fast to the name of Jesus, and they live in a city where Satan has his throne. There's something to just even being a Christian where Satan has his throne. There's something that's valuable and beautiful about that. That there's people that are struggling in, the, in New York City and, and cities like ours around the country in a secular culture. There's something valuable about saying, yes, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. And Jesus says, I, 
I, I encourage you for this. I'm awarding you for this. I think it's amazing that you're doing this. The name of Jesus by itself is powerful. We don't just be like, ah, you nominal Christians, you mean nothing. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord of lords and King of kings to the glory of the Father. All of creation, all of mankind. There's power in the name of Jesus and there's power in any Christian holding fast to the name of Jesus. If you've been struggling in your faith, and all you've been able to do is hold fast to the name of Jesus, I encourage you for that. Thank you for holding on to Jesus. Thank you for holding on to his name. I was thinking about guys I deal with in, in my law practice that are Christians in their workplaces, and because they won't put up a rainbow flag on their desk or whatever, whatever it is, like they're about to be fired. And they're like, I'm a Christian, I can't do that. That's holding fast to the testimony of Christ in the midst of a dark culture. That's what that is. And then Jesus says, but I have this, uh, excuse me, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice Sexual immorality. <laughs> you know the story? Gabe, you know the story? Yeah. You know what's so funny about this story? It doesn't say expressly anywhere that Balak is saying to Balaam, I want you to get the people of God to eat food, sacrifice to idols, and commit sexual immorality. He says, I want you to curse them. Because you know what a cursed people does? A cursed people commit sexual immorality and eat food to sacrifice to idols. He's getting, he never says that, but he's just asking Balaam to curse the people of God. You know what's crazy about this story is Balaam tries to curse the people of God all of these different times. The last time he's on his donkey, you probably remember the story from Sunday school, he's on his way to curse the people of God, and an angel is standing with a sword to kill Balaam. And Jesus' revelation to the church here, he stands with a sword in the same kind of context. When there's a curse coming against the people of God, that curse is that they would live in sin and lose their secure place in salvation. And the sword and judgment of God would fall upon them. The crazy thing is that this same kind of behavior, food sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality, this is the Jerusalem council, Acts chapter 25. He says, I'm bringing, Paul's talking to the Jerusalem council, he's like, I'm bringing all these new believers in. The only thing that they can't do, basic moral law, they can't walk in sexual immorality, they can't eat food sacrificed to idols, they can't eat stuff with blood in it. And we've talked about that in the past. But these basic elementary things in the kingdom of God are things that this church has thrown away because they got smarter, because they got sophisticated, because they have medicine, because they have the vaccine. That was a freebie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
Balaam's name uh, in, in the, throughout the scripture and in the New Testament, it, has be, it became in Jewish culture a catchphrase for someone that's using the message of God to make money. Balaam in the Old Testament, he wasn't actually an Israelite. He was actually a secular prophet, if you will, a seer, someone who had some kind of power. And Balak was trying to get him to curse the people of God. Every time he tried to do that, he would declare a blessing over the people of God. But here in this church, people were coming in and teaching this gospel with mixture, with compromise, and it was making them Instagram famous. They were like, hey, what do you think about masturbation? They were like, it's totally cool. It's totally cool. Do it whenever. It's totally cool. Followers going up. They were teaching compromise. This is exactly, this is the catchphrase for Balaam for their own personal gain. Jesus is like, I don't like it. What's, what is one of the principles here? One of the principles is in the church, we don't teach people to do worldly things. <laughs> I know it sounds crazy. It's crazy. We don't encourage people to do things of the flesh. The church encourages people to walk according to the spirit. <laughs> That's our job, you know? 1 Corinthians 8. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. This is what Paul says. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are so accustomed to idols when they see someone eat sacrificial food, they see it as having been sacrificed to a god because their conscience is weak and it is defiled. Paul's like, we know that food doesn't bring us close to God or far away from God. We know that. But there are weak believers that when you teach them to be fleshly, they lose their salvation. They're destroyed. Look, at, it says it right here. Be careful however, that, you exer that your exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Jesus literally says to the church, you're allowing the teachings of Balaam that are a stumbling block to the people of God. This is exactly the language from 1 Corinthians. Verse 10, for if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge all your knowledge in the city with 200,000 books. Eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols so your weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge? When you sin against them in this way, it's not when you sin against Christ, right? It doesn't say when you sin against God. When you sin against them in this way, and that's what Balaam was doing. He was, Balak was trying to get him to sin against the people of God. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again. I will be a vegan. I will eat a dig, only vegetarian options, so that I will not cause them to fall. 
Balaam teaches people to put stumbling, to, to not care about stumbling blocks, to not care about weak Christians. Because I have all this knowledge, I don't care what you think. If you fall, it's, your, it's on you, bud. That's on you. Wrong! Verse 15. So also, you have, some of you have held to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And we talked about this last week. This was, again, sexual immorality, um, idol, idol worship, etc. Verse 16. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them, the church, with the sword of my mouth. Balaam, when he goes to curse the people of God, the angels in front of the donkey with a sword about to kill Balaam because he's going to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel. Balaam, in Deuteronomy 31, verse 8, ultimately dies by the sword. And Jesus is standing in front of this church with a sword in his hand. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Again, remember, church, this is a symbolic message, so we have to see the symbolism, and we have to say when we see it, does this apply to me? The people that don't have ears to hear, they have ears that are stopped up. They say, this definitely doesn't apply to me, ever. (laughs) That means you don't have ears to hear. You're not willing to look at the picture and say, God, is there anywhere inside of me that I've been acting like this, behaving like this? Lord, correct me. Encourage me. You know, the other thing about uh, this church is that in the city, uh, medicine was this core element of the city, and the serpent on a staff, which has been throughout medicine for, for all of time, essentially, if you search that symbol back, that serpent was central in this culture. Again, again, I think it, it refers to the knowledge and the pride that these people have in themselves. They can do what they want. Okay, if you conquer, you get these three rewards. The first reward is the hidden manna. This is a pretty wild thing. (laughs) If you say no to eating the things of the world, the Lord will feed you something miraculous and phenomenal. Remember, this is about eating food sacrificed to idols. Symbolically, it's about compromise in our lives as believers, living with and in accordance with the world, consuming what they consume, eating what they eat, being just like the world. That's the idea. And... And the prize, the first prize, is if you say no to the food of this world, I'll give you this phenomenal food of heaven. The hidden manna. The secret sauce of God. You will be filled up. You will taste the most incredible things if you can say no to the things to eat right now in your culture. The things that the world wants you to consume which in part is, we talked about sexual immorality, but Proverbs 30 says this, this is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done nothing wrong. (laughs) Proverbs 30 uh, goes on to say, under three things the earth trembles and the four it cannot bear up. We have to remember, church, that eating stuff, and I'm not just talking about sandwiches here, eating things breaks the world. 
We forget a lot <laughs> that the simplicity of what we do with our life affects our relationship with God. Adam and Eve ate a piece of fruit and it broke the universe. We think what we consume is not a big deal. We think that what we put in our bodies and in our souls and our spirits will just say, sorry, God, I probably shouldn't have ate that. I shouldn't have had the fourth piece of cheesecake, Lord. Forgive me. Eating things breaks the world. And if God has told you not to eat something, and that may be not to watch something, that may be not to be in relationship with somebody, that may be literally not to drink or eat something or hang out at certain places, and you say, ah, he'll just forgive me, you forget that eating things breaks the world. And it has for the history of the church. But we're super sophisticated. So eating doesn't really matter. It's just physical things and a physical body. It doesn't affect my spirit. It's not a big deal at all. What you consume still affects you, both spiritually and physically. We're not Seventh-day Adventists around here, but, you know, they're not too bad. We don't hate them. If you don't know, they're vegetarians and they're weird, but don't worry about it. That'll be another sermon. Okay, hidden manna, that's the first thing. Say no to the manna of the world, get the manna of heaven. The second thing is the white stone. This is a really bizarre one. Like, <laughs> hold fast to me, I'll give you a rock. <laughs> you know, <laughs> hold on strong, I'll give you the white stone. The white stone is the yes of God. Inside of the breastplate of the high priest, when he walked before the Lord, he had the Urim and the Thummim. It was a black stone and a white stone. And he would use these to discern God's yes or God's no. <laughs> and he would reach in, he'd pray a prayer, he'd reach in and he'd grab out a stone. If it was a black stone, God said no. If it was a white stone, God said yes. That was kind of how it goes. This is incredible because Jesus comes as a judge. And a judge says yes or no. Jesus is standing discerning where the church is. They're, they don't know how to say yes or no to things. They're saying yes to the wrong things, and they're not saying no when God says no. And he says, if you hold fast, I will give you manna that's unbelievable to, to eat, and my yes will be in your heart. The white stone, the yes of God will be with you. You will be rewarded with, my, with the stamp of my approval. It's an incredible picture. Exodus 28.30, they put the Urim and the Thummim in the breast place, excuse me, breast piece so that, they, so that it may be over Aaron's heart whenever he enters the presence of the Lord. And thus Aaron will always hear by the means of making decisions for the Israelites over his heart before the Lord. And still today in Christ, we should have a yes or a no over our heart before the Lord. When we're walking into situations or relationships or things, we should go to God and say, God, what should I do? And his yes or his no wants to be over your heart. It was this incredible symbolic picture in the Old Testament that applies to us because we are the priesthood. We are priests and kings, Revelation 1.6, unto our God. And we walk with the presence of God and his voice is inside of our hearts. 
And he's saying, guys, if you'll judge rightly, church, if you'll be like me and hold the sword and say no to the stuff that's gross and compromising and defiling and say yes to my goodness, you'll have my yes in your heart. Isn't that cool? The third thing is he's given a new name or the church, the one who overcomes is giving, given a new name. And this is pretty incredible. Um, the sword has often been used in ceremonial times for kings to grant titles of nobility upon the people. You know, like in Arthurian legend, the guy kneels down before the king and he says, Arise, O sir, sincere of Harlem, you know? And your name changes. And the sword is something that's used to honor you, not to harm you. It is the force of the king that is now behind you. The force of his army that is now with you. The power of his might that you now are crescent. Is that a word? Crescent, there it is. With his name, with his title. This name that no one knows but God himself. And I don't know about you, but I just love the idea of mystery and God. That there's a name that only he knows that only he's going to call me. Check this out in Revelation 19. It says this. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and wages war. This is the guy you want on your team. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. So just like Jesus in Revelation 19, who has a name that no one knows, those that overcome will have a name that Christ gives them that only they know. Beale says that the people in this church will be stamped with the name of Christ, this new name, this hidden name. And the funny thing is, throughout the scripture, we see the patriarchs, we see saints interacting with God through a struggle, and after they come through the struggle, they're given a new name. Jacob, his name turns to Israel, right? And there's this transition that happened that he's given a new identity with God. Instead of deceiver, he's called prince with God. He's, the sword is extended towards Israel, and he's christened with a new and royal name. And that's what happens to this church that stands fast, that's faithful, that's overcome, that's judged themselves rightly so they no longer need to be judged. And the sword no longer stands as a threat to the believer, but something that empowers them in their life in God. Instead of not knowing how to respond to the world, they hold fast to God and the yes of heaven is inside of their heart. Instead of chasing the things of the world and being filled with them, they're chased or they're filled with the hidden manna, the blood of Jesus, his body, that gives them life and sustenance. Is that good, church? Yeah. Let's end it there. 
Worship team, why don't you come up, and uh, church, why don't you stand, and we'll pray, and we're grateful for Jesus, that he speaks to us, and that he reveals his goodness to us in bizarre pictures and words and phrases, and that his desire for us (laughs) is that we would be knighted by his sword. That's a pretty incredible thing. Not that he would have to use it to spank us with, but that he would use it to honor us. Father, we thank you for your word this evening. We thank you for the letters to the churches, that these are the churches throughout the generations, God. And that oftentimes we find ourselves in different churches or different places in our lives. And Jesus, you're faithful enough to remind us to call us back to your original intent, to your plan. We thank you for your love, God. We thank you for your presence here in Jesus' name. Amen.